on the prequel to the 35th episode. We're learning about satisfying endings, cluster headaches, and previewing Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. This is the final prequel episode of the Harry Potter series. Uh, after we're done with this one, we're going back to back on part one and part two, back to back weeks. Yes. Um, so you don't have to wait two weeks in between. It just makes more sense that way. We'll both be done reading. It'll just it'll work out. So, uh, yes, after this, two weeks in a row of main quote unquote episodes where we're doing both of the Harry Potter, final Harry Potter films. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's what we're going to do. Let's do our learning with this film is lit. Satisfying endings. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So I wasn't really sure what I wanted to talk about today mm-hmm. for for this segment, so I asked you. Yeah, I was just kind of came yeah. up with, tried to come up with something interesting. And yeah, yeah, you suggested like talking about ending a yeah. series or a story. Um, so I started thinking about that and like really giving some serious thought to what makes the ending of a story satisfying. Mm-hmm. And and I want to clarify that we're talking about the end end, right? So no no more sequels or um, anything like that. Right, yeah. Yeah, this is the end of the Harry Potter series. Yeah. Um, now, again, there are... I mean, we live in the era of the franchise, yes, so I feel like always, I need to clarify. <laughs> and, and, and yes, um, as for all, all things told, this was essentially the end of the series. Now, there has since been expansions with sure, with yeah. the Cursed Child, uh, with, you know, which that's a little more, at least in series, than to some extent, like, it has our main characters in mm-hmm. it, in that, uh, some of them. Um, and then now, obviously, the Fantastic Beasts films, they're not books, but... They are films right. and they are penned by J.K. Rowling and they are canon, quote unquote. So, but this is the final yeah, so in there, this series. There have been expansions on the universe, yeah. but n- maybe not so much like on this the story. story arc yeah. proper. Unless you count J.K. Rowling's tweets <laughs> after the fact, which we may or may not talk about. We will talk about. <laughs> We're going to do, and we'll talk about it a little bit more briefly or a little more, more at the end of this episode. We are going to do a special episode uh that won't be a prequel or a main episode but we're going to talk about some of the problems with harry potter uh i'll go into a little bit more about what that may be at the end of this episode but that's going to be its own thing so yeah so you can look forward, you can look to, forward that. to that and uh what <laughs> all, what jk rowling tweets takes. about may or may not uh be relevant to that so yeah all right so i was thinking on um what makes the ending of a story satisfying um, and i've kind of broken it down into five elements yeah of a, of a satisfying ending okay interesting i'm hearing all this for the first time <laughs> i didn't read these notes so so um so i'm going to just start out with my first element here um a satisfying ending keeps its promises yeah the promises of the story right. um it fulfills plot threads and character arcs um, elements from the throughout the story remain relevant or become relevant at the end, um, and it fulfills the expectations of the genre as well. Right. Because a genre makes certain promises, you anticipate particular things. Um, in a detective story, you have the promise of um, finding out what happened. The mystery at the being end. solved. Right. Yeah. Um, so, for example, uh, Beauty and the Beast. 
Um, we have a plot promise at the very beginning of the Disney movie about um, a transformation, right? They tell us how the spell can be broken, so we have the promise of that. Right. And we get that at the end of the story. Yes. Right? Um, the Enchanted Rose is kind of, an, it's an important thing, but it's kind of in the background for most of the movie. Then at the end, it becomes kind of a focal point. Yeah. Um, and it's a fairy tale. It's a modern fairy tale. So we're expecting a happy ending, yeah. and we get that. Mm-hmm. So it fulfills the promises of the genre as well. Mm-hmm. Um, element number two, a satisfying ending ties things up. Um, it answers important questions, but doesn't necessarily examine every detail of what happened to every single character. Right. Because um, that can get really tiresome. Yes. So you don't want that. Um, uh, is little to no new elements are introduced at the 11th hour. Um, typically we try to avoid deus ex machina, mm-hmm. um, God from the machine. On a side note here, I want to address the issue of plot twists. Okay. Um, good plot twists don't actually come out of nowhere. Yes. They've just been very subtly set up. So when I say... No new elements introduced at the 11th hour. I am including plot twists in that because a good plot twist has been set up. Yeah. Also under this element, um, a good ending doesn't leave any truly crucial information or plot points until the epilogue. Um, we get that stuff out of the way and if, if we have an epilogue. Yeah, if we have an epilogue, yeah, we which we do in this instance. Yes, and we don't want any of that, any really crucial or important things to happen in the epilogue. Yeah. The epilogue is kind of like a PS. Yeah. Oh, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, for example, uh, if you saw Black Panther mm-hmm. earlier this year, um, at the end of the movie, everything that allows T'Challa to defeat Killmonger, from him being saved by M'Baku to the train system that deactivates their suits, all of that stuff has been previously set up yeah. for us. So none of those elements seem out of place mm-hmm. there in the final battle. Uh, the ending also answers the important question about how Wakanda will interact with the rest of the the world world, moving forward. And it also shows them setting up the outreach center, but it doesn't go into detail on that. Right. And it also satisfies the the character arcs of... Yes. ...of our main two characters being Killmonger and Mm -hmm. T'Challa. A satisfying ending keeps the main character at its center. Uh, Focus should be mainly on whoever we've followed throughout the story. And yes, this is true, even if they're dead at the end. Yes. Focus should still be on them. Uh, Some properties close things out by introducing the next generation, um, which is fine. I think as long as it doesn't focus solely on those new characters, um, that can make it feel like the beginning of another story instead of the end of that story. story, Uh, For example, The Lion King. Mm-hmm. Um, at the following the climax, the big fight at the end of the movie, we focus on a shot of Simba standing over his now flourishing kingdom, right? Um, and we see his child, right? But that's not the focus of yeah. the scene. And in that instance, that also works really well thematically. Right. Um, it kind of echoes the circle of life because there's a whole song called the circle. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also a cyclical ending, but that's kind of beside the point. Right. The end reflects. Yeah, a mirror image of the beginning. That also reflects the theme. Yeah, again. (laughs) Um, Element number four, a satisfying ending features both conflict resolution and a denouement 
or a happy glow. Yes. I like to call it. Um, and this is enough. This is enough to close something out. I think stories that try to keep going on and on after they've hit both of those things end up falling flat. Yeah. You have to really earn it. Yeah. Because it jumps to mind, and it's a joke everybody has, but in the Lord of the Rings films, the denouement lasts about 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it works only because you have been so invested for the whole time, but even even that mm-hmm. drags to the point a little bit where after the fourth time we fade to black, you're like, is this actually over? <laughs> uh, and I mean, again, it's not, it's not a unique... Uh, and that brings to mind, too, um, I saw the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Boy, I don't remember any in after the, the first one. I, in the theater... Um, I know I've seen a few of them, but... The one where Orlando Bloom's character dies and gets resurrected, whichever the I don't know one which that one that was. is. But I remember sitting there, and I thought the movie was over, like, five times yeah. before it was actually over. Like, that can be a problem. Yes, it can. Like you said, you have to really earn yeah. that. Yeah, like I said, I think it only works in the instance of Lord of the Rings. People still make jokes about it, but it works because we've mm-hmm. been so on board with all of this for the rest of the time that it's not... We're there. We'll 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 buckle up for your three endings. You know, we'll <laughs> yeah. sit through it. Um, I was actually I was going to use the example of Return of the Jedi. Okay. So we have conflict resolution there um, in the death of the Emperor and the redemption slash death of Vader, and then we have our happy glow in the party on Endor when we see the <laughs> yeah. the, the Force Ewok ghosts party. all gathered yeah. and everybody's having a good time. Yeah. Okay, and our fifth element, fifth and last element. Um, A satisfying ending should reflect the story in regard to the themes. Um, For example, Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the themes is death versus immortality. Yeah. Um, And the narrative satisfies that theme by nodding to the concept of an afterlife when Frodo and company set sail. Mm-hmm. For the the gray havens, right? Yeah, I believe the that's what the undying. That's what I call lands. it was the gray havens. Yeah, but yeah, the undying. Whatever they, yeah, they have like six names. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. a Tolkien <laughs> thing, so they have like six names. But yeah, um, and I want to mention here uh, the much maligned Harry Potter epilogue. Yeah, um, yes, the often, often, uh, yeah, not. Yeah, a lot of often people, joked about. A lot of people don't like the Harry Potter epilogue. I have no strong feelings about it. I have mixed feelings about it. Um, But I I think part of the reason that it feels a little bit unsatisfying is that it's unnecessary. Yeah, it is. On this element, Absolutely unnecessary. Um, You know, one of the themes of Harry Potter is coming of age. Mm -hmm. And the book attempts to satisfy that by showing the characters as adults. But the thing is is that by the time we get to the epilogue, they've already come of age. Yeah. So we don't need to see them as no. adults. It feels su- superfluous. Everything that happens in the epilogue is what you knew happened. Yes. <laughs> like, is the thing. It's like, it's it's not, it, it's nothing that anybody who read the series wouldn't have expected to be what happened, pretty much. Like, yeah. essentially, barring some terrible naming choices. But, like, <laughs> it's... Uh, you know, there's nothing surprising or particularly interesting about the epilogue. It's it's it it's fan service in truly the most like kind of blatant way that something can yeah. be fan service, and it's actually a bit of a, a sign, I think, of of some of the 
so, some of the problem with J.K. Rowling post <laughs> the uh, yeah the series. It's uh, and at least from my experience reading uh, Cursed Child, where it's it's sometimes J.K. Rowling can feel a bit like a fanfic author. Yeah, like she's writing fic for her own universe. Yeah, 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 uh, and it's. It is a Interesting. little, yeah. It is a little fan fictiony. Um, so, but those are my five elements mm-hmm. for a satisfying ending. Uh, but of course, the last and perhaps most important thing to remember is that there are no rules in writing. No, of course um, not. There are conventions, mm-hmm. but a good writer. A good storyteller can sometimes bend those conventions to their will. Yeah. So for each element I've discussed, there will be exceptions. Yes, of course. Um, and all of our readers, or all of our listeners, rather, are very clever, so I'm sure they've already thought yes. of some as yeah. I was listing all those. Yeah, and sometimes, a lot of times, the, the those uh, satisfying endings can change even by things in regards to things like genre. Yeah. Kind of how you mentioned, but like horror movies, kind of classically, I, I say movies more specifically, but maybe even books, stories to some extent, but horror movies kind of classically subvert, very often subvert your typical ending mm-hmm. by having the bad guy win yeah, or, or having unanswered questions. An unanswered question yeah. or, or it looks, or uh, an ending where it looks like the good guys won, but then the hand comes out of the grave, you know, and oh, you know, like things like that, which subvert sort of your typical right. um, ending. But that makes sense for that genre. Yeah, it fulfills the promise of right, the genre. Of the genre, like, as, you, as you mentioned. So, yeah, but that was just kind of one of I things. did put that rule yes, higher you than did. the other rule. You did, you did. So, I, again, I'm not correcting so much as expanding. Upon no, yeah, thing. there will always be exceptions. Yeah. Uh, the trick is whether or not changing those things work. Yeah. All right, so that was uh, learning about satisfying endings, and uh, we're going to discuss during the main episodes whether or not we think both the book and the movie yeah. of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows provide that satisfying ending. So that get we're ready to for. hear more about the epilogue. Yeah, yeah, we will talk <laughs> at length about the epilogue in uh, part two of the Deathly Hallows. Uh, so yeah, get ready for that one. Now we're going to do a little mini learning, little learning with this film is lit because uh, we got reached out to by a fan. So I got, uh, as I mentioned, somebody reached out to me on uh, Reddit. Reddit. It was on yeah. Reddit, on our subreddit. Well, I don't know. They messaged me specifically, but I assume they found us through the subreddit because I post the stuff there. Um, and this is interesting. I didn't know about this. They said, hey, you may want to talk about this in your episode. I said, yeah, that's interesting. I will bring it up. Uh, I didn't think there was, we didn't know enough about this topic, and it, it doesn't really fit with our necessarily our learning things segment because our learning things segment is generally more about writing and, and, and storytelling, storytelling and, and yeah. that sort of thing. But this is interesting, and I just thought I'd mention it and just to kind of spread the word. So apparently, and the person who reached out to me's name was Apple Cork. I believe that's how you say it. It's how it's spelled. Apple and then C-O-R-C. So I assume Apple Cork. Uh, apparently, Daniel Cliff, Daniel Cliff, Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> uh, suffers from something called cluster headaches, which I think I had heard of. I have heard of that. But yeah. they're, well, they're super rare or fairly rare. Mm-hmm. It's like less than 0.1% of people deal with this. But it's a neurological disorder characterized by recurring severe headaches on one, usually on one side of the head. This is from Wikipedia. I, again, there's probably more specific, accurate definitions. but And it's typically around the eye. Um, they're uh, incredibly painful, or can be incredibly painful, uh, and have because of that have colloquially become known as suicide headaches because it's mm. not uncommon for people suffering from them when they get really bad to just want to kill themselves, like to avoid the pain, um, to escape the pain. Again, they are fairly rare. Uh, like I said, I think the on Wikipedia it said like less than point one percent of people. Again, I you know, 
I, who, who knows what the exact number on that is. Um, but uh, so, yeah, Daniel Radcliffe suffers from it. He talked about it uh, and I read a, a, an article where he talked about how uh, he has to take he takes. Um, uh, there's not really any actual, quote unquote, treatment necessarily mm-hmm. for it. But there are things you can do to kind of help sure, alleviate yeah. or, and reduce and that sort of thing. And he, he talked about one of the things he did does is even as because he's had him from I think during the time he was filming the movies. Uh, is take he takes like blood pressure medicine as like a 16 year old or whatever <laughs> because uh, apparently blood pressure medicine can potentially help alleviate or, or or stop the again I don't know exactly how true any of this is I'm I'm not a doctor I don't know this is just what the article this is Brian's disclaimer yeah, this is my disclaimer <laughs> I don't like to spread medical misinformation so I, I'm just uh, did a brief overview uh, but this is what the article was saying that he takes this uh, blood pressure medicine and anything so anyways if this is something that Potentially, and now the odds of one of our listeners being somebody that's well, obviously at least one person yeah. is. But if anybody else, there is a, a subreddit you can check out if this is something you suffer from or somebody you know, a friend or family member suffers from. Uh, there's a subreddit called r slash clusterheads, uh, which I guess you know makes sense because mm-hmm. cluster headaches. Um, and they have like more information. It's kind of like a almost like a supported group type yeah, thing, like you yeah. know, like a subreddit. So if you have anybody that deals with that or you do. Uh, go check out the subreddit. Um, again, they're kind of a, a, a tight knit community. It wasn't not a very big subreddit. I think less than two thousand people. But again, it makes sense well, since it's a pretty rare mm-hmm. uh, a disorder. But uh, check it out and uh, and see. I thought it was an interesting little bit of yeah. Now I had no idea that Daniel Wycliffe suffered from that. So thanks for reaching out, Apple Cork, and uh, thanks for listening. All right, let's move on to book facts. facts uh, harry potter and the deathly hollows part of the reason that i wanted to do just one prequel episode was because i would not have any book facts for the second yeah, prequel it, you <laughs> splitting it up would have been very yeah. tough for you um so harry potter and the deathly hollows uh released july 21st 2007 now you'll recall that sorcerer's stone was released in 1997 meaning that the series spanned an entire decade and our formative years. Yes. <laughs> Very yep. much so. Um, so Deathly Hollows absolutely decimated sales records yes, upon release. Unsurprising. Uh, it surpassed all the previous titles of the series. And I think this is still accurate, but according to what I found, it holds the Guinness World Record for most novels sold within 24 hours and of release. I can't imagine there would be something else that would have passed it. Yeah, it was... million sold in the U.S. alone, and 2.65 million in the U.K. I mean, I remember going to the midnight book premiere or Mm -hmm. book, you know, release at my local Barnes and Noble with a bunch of people from my high school friends, and I remember there being a. I mean, again, this is just our our town of like 50,000 people. The Barnes and Noble, the line was. Yeah. Around the block. Like, it was insane. Like, it was huge. Um, So Rowling has said that she had considered three titles for the book. Um, The final title was released to the public on the 21st of December in 2006 um, through a special Christmas-themed hangman puzzle on her website. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Her interesting website that she... I think it's still up, but... I'm pretty sure she still does stuff through her website, yeah. 
so the other two title options were Harry Potter and the Elder Wand and Harry Potter and the Peverell Quest. Hmm. Yeah, that's a terrible title. Yeah, it is. Peverell Quest is. Uh, Elder Wand's Elder, okay, but it's Elder a little Wand's too okay. obvious. Or not obvious, but it's... Deathly like Hallows it is good. It puts the focus on just the wand. Just the wand. And plus, which is more um, important, kind of. But. Yeah, and Deathly Hallows, like, I don't know if you remember, but that was like a big mystery. Oh, yeah, nobody like, knew what it. What are meant. the Deathly yeah, Hallows? Yeah. yeah, the Elder Wand, it's pretty clear. That's what, yeah. It's a wand of some sort. Whereas the Deathly Hallows, yeah, nobody, you're like, what? Because we had no, we had no real, we had been introduced to all of them, but we mm-hmm. had no, you know, we didn't know what that was or what any of that meant. Right. Until the seventh book. So yeah, it was all pure speculation. Yeah. And I mean, everybody was assuming, not incorrectly, that the seventh book would focus on the Horcruxes. Yeah. So then to have the Deathly Hollows is was a title, very strange, like, like what? wait, what? What are, what are what the Hollows? We're introducing some new thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, here's an interesting thing that I found out. Uh, Rowling completed the book while she was staying at the Balmoral Hotel in Edinburgh in January of 2007. Edinburgh. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Any of our British listeners will fucking fight you. Or Scottish really, listeners specifically. We don't need to but... fight me. I just said it phonetically. Yeah, I'm I, know, it. I know. Edinburgh. Edinburgh. And I, even I'm not doing it justice, but Edinburgh. But yeah, it's it's Scottish, the capital of Scotland. Anyway, um, so apparently she left a signed statement on a marble bust of uh, Hermes in her room, which read, J.K. Rowling finished Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows in this room on 11 January 2007. There you go. So... Oh, I did. Did I go see that? I might have went and seen that. Have you seen it? I've been. I mean, I was in Edinburgh for like a month in Col- I don't know if we have been talking about this on the podcast at all, but I went to Scotland and stayed in Edinburgh specifically for a month, almost a month and a half when I was in college uh, for with a marching band thing. Um, and we saw a lot of because there was a lot of stuff because she spent a lot of time in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that I that sounds familiar and I may have seen that. I don't know. But something about that rung a bell when you said that this has been again seven years ago since I did that, but I don't know. Sorry. I was curious. Like, I wonder if she asked for permission or if she just went ahead and defaced the marble bust. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if she just did it at that point. Cause like queen of the world. I mean, basically, was. I mean, like she probably made it more valuable. Yeah, true. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> when she was asked about, Uh, Before publication about the book, Rowling stated that she could not change the ending even if she wanted. She said, these books have been plotted for such a long time, and for six books now that they're all leading a certain direction, so I really can't. Yeah. Um, She has said that the last chapter of this book was written in something like 1990. Yeah, that's what I always heard. As part of her earliest work on the series. Yeah. And I'm assuming that means the last chapter and not, not the epilogue. epilogue. There's no way it was the <laughs> epilogue. Yeah, I assume she, yeah, the last chapter. Yeah. But she, that's, that's surprising to me. Because I mean, there's definitely elements of this that, as I'm rereading them, feels like things she added and, and yeah. figured out as she wrote them. Well, I'm sure she means a version right. of the last chapter. Right. Like, I'm sure the basic idea of part of the soul of the bad guy being in the hero, yeah. the hero dying, that being the thing that allows them to mm-hmm. defeat the, you know, like, I, 
I get that some element of that probably is what she basically means. Yeah. Would be my guess. Because there are other elements that I'm like, I don't know how you could possibly have. That seems like this was added in like the fifth book. Like, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, going to a midnight release party. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of parties. Yeah. This was a really big deal. Um, the launch was celebrated in London by an all-night book signing and reading at the Natural History Museum, um, which Rowling attended, which had to have been just really cool. Yeah, I would imagine pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, Scholastic, over in America, launched a multi-million dollar marketing campaign. Um, They had a night bus that traveled to libraries around the United States, um, there were online competitions that they ran, and they handed out collectible bookmarks and temporary tattoos, which I will have to look around, but I'm pretty sure I still have one of those A temporary tattoo? tattoos. Oh, if yeah. you do, we're doing it and posting the picture on Instagram. I'm not, no, I've kept it for this long. We are not doing that temporary uh, tattoo. Fine. We'll take a picture they of giving it. Out, uh, were they giving out dark mark temporary tattoos? Because that would be... I think it Weird. was a seven that looked like a lightning bolt. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there was some controversy with the publication of this book, though. Mm. Um, and the week before its release, a number of a set of photographs representing all 759 pages of the U.S. edition were leaked and fully transcribed prior to the uh, wow. the official release date. Yeah, somebody took pictures of Every all the book page. pages. Yeah. And without a smartphone, too. Yeah. That had to have taken forever. Yeah. Well, if you got a digital camera, you <laughs> can do it pretty, you know. Their digital cameras were yeah. pretty prevalent in 2007. Yeah, so those photographs uh, later appeared on websites. Um Leading Scholastic to seek a subpoena to try to identify the source. Um, I couldn't find anything about if they ever identified it. It would probably be almost impossible. Yeah. But uh, it's probably the most serious security breach in the series history. Like the whole dang book. That's pretty bad. Yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, So another controversy was that there were a couple different uh, UK supermarket chains that, uh, well, first they took pre-orders for the book at a heavily discounted price, um, which sparked, and then they sparked a price war two days before the official launch by announcing that they would sell it for just five pounds a copy, um, essentially turning it into a loss leader. Mm. Um, I, and I, I was pretty sure I knew what a loss leader was, but I went ahead and looked it up to be sure. Uh, it's a product sold at a loss in order to attract customers. Um, so, you know, this kind of caused an uproar for more traditional booksellers, um, who pretty much had no hope of competing with that price range. Um, especially like the smaller bookstores and some of those smaller bookstores, I thought this was interesting. They kind of hit back by buying their stock from the supermarkets instead of from the wholesalers. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. The, yeah. So the couple of chains like tried to counter that by imposing a limit of like two copies per customer. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a whole big thing. Oh goodness. Capitalism. Right. <laughs> 
Um, so the book was generally well received by critics. Mm-hmm. Um, reviewer Alice Fordham from The Times wrote, We have come a long way together, and neither Rowling nor Harry let us down in the end. Which I thought was a really nice, oh, really nice little nice. sentiment. Um, Deathly Hallows also won several awards. In 2007, it was named one of the New York Times 100 Notable Books and one of its notable children's books. In 2008, the American Library Association named the novel one of its best books for young adults. Um, It also received the 2008 Colorado Blue Spruce Book Award. So those are my book facts. All right, let's move on to Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows movie facts. Why do you live? Because I have something worth living for. So this is kind of a combination of movie facts for both of them. Uh, And it works because uh, the first movie fact is that, well, second movie fact, but is that the Deathly Hallows was shot back to back and basically treated as one film during principal Mm -hmm. photography. So they essentially filmed it like one big movie, Um, but they did all decide to split it into two parts. And they said that came from, quote unquote, creative imperative. It was uh, suggested by one of the executive producers, Lionel Wingram. Wingram? Wingram? David Heyman, who executive produced like all of these, mm-hmm. initially didn't want to, but uh, Wingram asked him, no, David, how are we going to do it? <laughs> so they... <laughs> That's a fair question. <laughs> caved and they decided to split it into two films. Uh, and I believe I read, and I may have that here at some point, so I'll, I'll wait and see. Um, uh, uh, it's uh, directed once again, both of them by David Yates, uh, who has directed since five, mm-hmm. all of them, or six, six, all of them, since six, yes. all of them, uh, including Fantastic Beasts. Um, uh, once again, Alfonso Curon uh, said he would be tempted to return to direct. And Guillermo del Toro, who we've talked <laughs> about every fucking time, Finally. who passed on Prisoner of Azkaban, expressed interest in directing The Deathly Hallows. Uh. But... And this is the great grand irony of it all. His increased workload over the production of The Hobbit meant he couldn't. And as we all know. Oh, no. Guess who didn't end up directing The Hobbit? (laughs) (laughs) So it was a rough couple of years for Guillermo there there with the projects. But, yeah, we could have had a Del Toro directed uh, two uh, movies of uh, The Deathly Hallows. But... uh, we got instead the ho- oh wait nope never mind we got nothing <laughs> we got nothing yes so anyways that's uh yeah that's why del toro never got around to directing a harry potter movie even though he almost did like six times <laughs> apparently filming the uh the opening uh the seven harrys scene which mm-hmm. we get very early in both the book and the movie is when they're taking harry from privet drive uh it was super complex and Daniel Radcliffe counted over 90 takes for just one shot during oh, that no. scene. Uh, for one, I, who knows what that particular shot was. I couldn't find what that was, but apparently one shot took over 90 takes. Uh, and this is interesting. We've talked about this a little bit in regards to Dobby, but Sir John Hurt reprises his role as Ollivander mm-hmm. in this film. And it's the longest gap between appearances in Harry Potter films. He was in the first one oh. as Ollivander. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and then it was nine years later he reappears as Ollivander in part one of this movie. And two, I think. Yeah, because we see... Um... At the very end of this one, I think. Yeah. And But I see he's taken in six. Right. But, but it's we not... You yeah. just see a guy with a hood over his yeah. head. So it's not... They didn't pay Sir John Hurt to <laughs> have a Gooba bag over his head for five seconds. So... Uh, and then Toby Jones uh, returns as Dobby, and his was the second longest because it was eight years because he was in the second movie, obviously. Yeah. Uh, which, again, that was a mistake we think they made in the movies where he should have been in at least one other one. Yeah. But uh, this is a fun. Uh, Emma Watson, upon seeing the set for Hermione's bedroom, which we do see in the movies, uh, her muggle mm-hmm. bedroom, uh, she told the set decorators there should be way more books. And they happily accommodated. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently there wasn't enough books in the first pass of her bedroom. Uh, this uh, part one of the Deathly Hollows is the only film not in the franchise not to feature Maggie Smith as McGonagall mm. or Argus Filch as or David Bradley's Argus Filch or Alfred Enoch as Dean Thomas. None of the, the three of them do not appear in the film. And now it's because we don't really spend much time at Hogwarts. Right. So that's why. I mean, they're all in the second part yes. two. But the, yeah, part one, they're, they're not in it. Um, this I did not realize, and I just found out, and I thought was really fascinating. Uh, this was composed by Alexandra Desplat. Desplat. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's a French guy. Uh, John Williams couldn't do it because of scheduling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a- Alexandra Desplat, he did both of these movies, uh, is the Oscar-winning composer of The Shape of Water. Mm-hmm. And uh, a handful of, uh, not a handful, a bunch of other films. Mm-hmm. But um, I didn't realize he did these two yeah, Harry Potter films. Yeah, I love The Shape of Water was... Uh, we love the movie. We talked about it on here, but the soundtrack for that I thought was just gorgeous. And yeah, same guy. This I didn't realize that Tonks is Osha from Game of Thrones. Yeah, I somehow yeah, I blanked that. on that. Uh, yeah, the 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 wildling that they pick up. Mm-hmm. Spoilers uh, for Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, and uh, Mrs. Granger is played by Michelle something. I blanked on her name, but the actress who plays Caitlin Stark. Oh, really? Plays Hermione's mom. Hmm. And, and again, we I, we see her mom and dad for a scene in the movie. Right. I didn't realize that or I forgot yeah, I that that was that. the case. Because at the time, I didn't, Game of Thrones wasn't a thing, so. Right. Apparently, filming, they filmed a torture scene where at the end of this movie where Bellatrix tortures Hermione at the Malfoy Manor. Mm-hmm. And apparently it was like super duper intense and that they actually had to cut most of it because uh, it would have involved like an R rating. Much. Like it was Ooh. just way too intense for... Uh, for like a, a younger audience. Um, and there's an improvised scene. Or not improvised. But it's something that. Uh, um, Helena, Bonham, Helena Carter. Bonham Carter. And Emma Watson decided to add. That wasn't in the script originally. Uh, but in that scene. Mm-hmm. That I didn't remember being in the movie. But we'll talk about it in the thing. Okay. Okay. There's something that happens during that torture scene. That I think. That supposedly. Or at least sounds like did make it into the movie. That wasn't in the book. And that they they it was like their two ideas came up with. Finally, I thought this was really interesting. Uh, so at the time, no, not at the time. Well, here we go. I'll just read it and I'll kind of explain. Or it makes it obvious. Uh, of all the surnames that J.K. Rowling came up with for the series, Black is the only one that readily translates into other languages mm-hmm. because it's just a, a color. Yeah. Like it's easy. Uh, in foreign language editions of the book. In which the surname is translated, R.A.B. was similarly altered, uh, such that B. always matched the first letter of the word for black. For example, Dutch editions translated Sirius Black as Sirius Warts. Hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, and RAB to RAZ, Finnish editions, uh, Sirius Musta, <laughs> uh, and RAM. So, um, the, I think, what, did, how did this go? I read, I just realized I didn't get that part of the notes down. This basically was able to be the book translations of book six mm-hmm. made, made it so that it was a confirmation that this was in fact Regulus Black before. If you went and looked, people look, and this is less of a movie fact, but it's interesting. Oh, I see what if you're If you saying. went, if people read the sixth book, went and looked at a translation of mm-hmm. RAB, and it, it would, and they looked in the, uh, what is it, the Dutch edition, it would say RAZ. And it's pretty easy from there to start right. put together yeah, that yeah, that yeah. that's black. I mean, people kind of figured it out anyways. Yeah, it wasn't like a huge uh, mystery. I mean, it was people speculate about it, but anyways, I thought that was interesting. That was one of the ways people like for sure figured it out. And again, I guess this was more of a yeah book I guess fact. More. I don't know how that can end up in my movie facts, nah, but that's interesting. <laughs> it was on a page when I was going through movie <laughs> stuff, so I somehow thought it was interesting and added it. But yeah, that's all I have for the movie facts. I'm sure there's a lot more. There is a really there. They made a documentary during the filming of these two movies mm-hmm. um, that I'm sure has all kinds of juicy stuff. But I couldn't find it to watch, and I didn't have time to watch an hour and a half long documentary. But I bet it is really interesting. So there is a documentary about the making of these two movies that you could go check out if you want more behind the scenes stuff. Um, but that's all I had for the movie facts. All right, that's it. We're ready to wrap it up. Um, we mentioned I mentioned earlier we're going to be doing a special episode post these two i would think mm-hmm. uh about and this was your idea and i think it's a really good idea because we've we've sort of gushed and um heaped praise upon this series and jk rowling uh and there's some elements to the series that are a little, a little problematic have and there are problems with the series that we think might be uh interesting to discuss and kind of talk about more at length that we've a couple of times we've touched on things here yeah. and there um, and mentioned them and brought them up. But we thought it might be interesting to kind of do it as its own thing, uh, as a loving critique. Right. Of some of the I elements of the Im- series. It's important to be able to look honestly yeah. at the things that you love. Yeah. You you can absolutely critique it. It's something that I think is really important. And I don't think people understand is that you can... Not people. Some people don't seem to understand yeah. is that you can critique something and and call it out as being problematic and still not think it's a terrible thing. Yeah, <laughs> and that it's horrible and and the shouldn't two exist. Aren't actually they're not mutually. As it turns out, they're not mutually <laughs> exclusive. You can find things incredibly bad and problematic and still overall like a thing. <laughs> like it's very possible. Um, so we're going to talk about some of those elements. Uh, we won't go into now what they all will be, but we're uh, making up a list uh, of, of things and to talk we're about. Checking it twice. Checking it twice. Got a handful already that I'm excited to discuss. Uh, I'm excited. I don't know what the right word, but yeah, uh, that I think will be interesting to discuss, and so that it will be a juicy episode for the post Harry Potter series. Again, that's going to be its own special thing. We'll record that and kind of release it. I don't know, separate or not separate, but it, it won't be a prequel episode. It won't be yeah. part of a prequel episode, and it won't be a main episode. It'll so. be a nice little surprise. It's an extra little episode uh, at some point coming up, maybe before Christmas or something like that. So. Anyways, that's going to be it for this prequel episode of This Film is Lit. As always, you can uh, check us out on all social media. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever else you download our podcast. Uh, and that's it. Let's do it. Uh, Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows. Time to wrap this thing up. Till next time, keep reading books, keep watching movies, keep being awesome.